Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Siobhan Sutter. Welcome, Siobhan. Hi, how are you? Oh, awesome. So glad you could be here. Today's going to be a cool chat. Um, we're going to be talking all about deaf blindness today, which is uh, an area that uh, I don't think a lot of people know about. Um, and I think a lot of people are curious about some some folks kind of run into cases every now and then. But, you know, it, we'll we'll get into some stats later, I'm sure. But it, it's 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 somewhat of a, a rare thing. So not everyone runs into it. I know in, in my experience, you know, in, in sort of working in 20 years, I ran into two clients in that period that were deafblind um, and both were so incredibly different from one another. Um, and uh, so, you know, it, it, it's really, you know, folks who've been listening to this podcast for a while know that I talk a lot about bias and um, you could certainly have a lot of biases about a diagnose, a diagnostic label. And uh, you know, they're, they're, the individuals are so different from, from, from sort of person to person. So yeah, really interested to kind of get into this and, uh, and learn more about it. Uh, also thought it was really cool because, you know, I don't see a lot of behavior analysts working in this area. Uh, and uh, so it's fun when we find someone doing some novel stuff and hopefully maybe uh, getting some other folks kind of interested in doing that. Um, just want to briefly uh, acknowledge uh, that I'm producing this podcast on the t territory of the Tlaman, Comox, Homoko, and Klahus First Nations, which were one one um, community uh, before uh, settlers came and uh, separated them all into reserves and did lots of nasty things. Um, and uh, particularly uh, grateful for a lot of things in terms of, in terms of, uh, you know, what I've been learning about the Tlaman people. Um, and I recently came upon, um, which I'll, I'll share in the show notes. Um, uh, I've been talking quite a few times. I do, I do uh, it's territorial, territorial, territorial acknowledgements um at the beginning of every podcast just uh because I, I you know i just want to kind of share you know what's happening in my neck of the woods and and you know with the with the first peoples that are here and i, I came upon a, a newsletter called the I'm butcher in the name it's called the uh ne motel um uh, i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right um, um, and, uh, it's basically the Tlaman newsletter that comes out every month. And there's a fella named Colin Osmond, who's a PhD student from the University of Saskatchewan, which I want to reach out to because he's been doing, um, little sort of little history lessons about Tlaman. I had no idea that there was even information out there. And so this has sort of been my, my latest project is trying to learn more about the history of the Tlaman peoples. Um, and I hope to share what I've learned in future acknowledgements. Um, so, so, so once again, just, just grateful, grateful to be here. Um, so Shabon, before we kind of get into the whole, uh, deaf blind area, maybe you can just share a bit about kind of your origin story, how, how you got into the field of ABA and, and, and kind of what led you to where you're, where you are now. So I, let's see, 
<laughs> I didn't actually intend originally to go into the field of ABA. And when mm. I actually started, went back to grad school, I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> mm. And I, uh, I was actually studying to for a master's degree in, in um, severe disabilities. And um, my advisor was um, who... I actually work with now in the field of deaf blindness at the, at the university is um, um, she's a behavior analyst. And mm. at the time, again, I didn't know that I was studying severe disabilities, but I took this class this where she, she was uh, of course, behavior analytic in nature. And she focused on um, uh, instructional methods and systematic in, and systematic instruction and response prompting. And um, I had never heard of it. And the fact mm. that I had never never heard of it before. Um, to me, it was like this, um, <laughs> it was very enlightening. I was like, what do you mean? Nobody's ever told me that this existed before. Like, why haven't I been doing this the entire time? How could you not want something that was going to guide you and help you to make database decisions? And then, you know, actually tell you what about your instruction needed to change. It was just like that one of those aha moments. Mm. Um, and so, um, Loved working with her and eventually, after being a classroom teacher, went back to uh, get my doctorate. And um, again, she was my advisor and she was like, you should really do this behavior analysis thing. <laughs> and um, uh, that and that's actually how the that's actually how I started down the whole path. <laughs> right on. So what. There, there's a bit of a story before this that I don't think we're hearing, and and, that, and that's why you wanted to do a master's degree in severe disabilities. What sort of led you down that path? Oh well, I actually um, started as uh, a, a classroom teacher in a general oh. education classroom, nice and um, and I loved teaching, and but I just thought it was like a little boring like easy you know like I was working with all these learners and in general they're mostly really good and easy learners and I mm. thought you know like how can I reach these kids that have this like more complex stuff going on like what what is it about about them and their learning and their and really and my teaching and at the mm. time really of course I'm thinking about what is it between the individual and the and the environment how are they interacting mm. that really makes them learn and I just thought it was such a, a fascinating um like problem to be solved almost or, or or you know just how how could we not be interested in how we learn <laughs> and mm -hmm. so um i thought you know i wanted something that was a little bit more individualized to the in, um to the students that i was working with and yeah. i thought what better way than to um you know look at these individuals who um are traditionally um you know more complex learners so that's what started me down the path, I guess. <laughs> right. So was this degree sort of intended to just augment your teaching career? Yeah. So I actually um, switched teaching positions. I went from a general education classroom to a class of students with um, uh, who are more impacted by their disabilities, a self-contained type of special mm -hmm. education classroom. And so the Master's in Severe Disabilities, did you actually do that degree or did you switch to an ABA degree? No, I actually did that degree. <laughs> okay. And, uh, but you took some maybe like ABA courses while you were doing that. Is that kind of how that worked or? So, um, not exactly. So mm. they were actually classes in, in, um, severe disabilities, but of course, you know, for, for teachers, teacher education, licensure in that area. Mm. And so of course my teacher was also, my professor was, um, 
a behavior analyst. And so many of those instructional method type of courses mm. um, were really ABA focused right. <laughs> without using that terminology. Gotcha. But did, so did you do sort of the, the you know, the, the VCS or whatever? So I went back and did the full, all the courses, a full uh, sequence through my, as part of my my program as, uh, yeah, gotcha, as a gotcha. doctoral student. Right on, right on. Okay, so Master's of Your Disabilities and then, and then, and then the, the PhD, that was that in ABA? In special education. And then in addition to that, I took the course sequence, some courses through the psych department. So I had a nice, nice mix with the nice. final degree in um, special education and education. Right on. right on. Okay. And then um, how'd you go? go uh, there, I mean, the, we can already probably see a bit of a path here, but, <laughs> but, but how did you get to sort of the, the deafblind population? <laughs> So again, this is through just through people. My my advisor, she is actually um, she, there. Are, she she is the program, the project director, mm. um, and for the state deafblind project. Um, and so originally, um, uh, you know, this was another thing that I I started working as a graduate assistant at one point, just doing some extra work for the project. I didn't have any experience with children who were deafblind. Um, but um, in severe disabilities, I did. Uh, and so come to find out every state basically has one of these deafblind technical assistance um, projects. And there's oh. a, a national center as well. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I learned a little bit about the population and it is really um like you said, you've only come across probably a couple in your career. Yeah. Uh, and it's the the disability that has the lowest incidence. So what hmm. we would, you know um see as a as a relatively small but in heterogeneous group of learners and I thought well that totally fits in with this idea of you know wanting to think about these complex learners and and what it is um that makes them learn and um that's just kind of how it started it's like I want to be involved in that <laughs> yeah so so you you've you've mentioned uh, this advisor several times so who who's she uh, Marianne Demchak, she is a professor at the University of Nevada. Nice. Right on, right on. Um, and so, well, let, let, let's get into some of the basics here because, um, you know, it, it's it seems sort of obvious, but uh, you know, in 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 the name, but uh, what 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 exactly is sort of deaf blindness, and then kind of more so, you know. Yeah, like I think I think if I were just walking in clueless, um, and I and I saw deaf blind, you know, uh, you know, uh, the biases would kick in. You know, Helen Keller would come to mind. Um, you know, as sort of the you know most famous person to be kind of deaf blind. Um, and of course, you know, it's I, I, I get the feeling she's kind of like the the Dustin Hoffman Rain Man of autism <laughs> in that. A lot of people just sort of, you know, lump everybody into the Helen Keller category, not realizing there's so many differences. So maybe tell us what deaf blindness is, but then kind of a bit about sort of, you know, the ranges and different types, that sort of thing. 
So that was a good analogy and also a good question because, yeah, you're right. It's a really heterogeneous group. Um, we think about deaf blindness, like you said, we should think of typically think of somebody um, who is totally deaf and and totally blind. And mm. and when and you're right, we would also probably usually think of somebody who has um, certain characteristics, kind of like Helen Keller, and that would mm. be somebody who uh, Helen Keller, in fact, was um, even though it was a a very young age, she had some, um, it was acquired deaf blindness. And so um, one of the things is that deaf blindness really includes people with a whole range or continuum of um, uh, loss in both vision and hearing. So um, it includes those who might have a mild loss in both areas. Um, so you might have a, a mild uh, visual impairment and a mild hearing loss, but it could also include those who are completely or profoundly deaf and blind and and so it could also be, you could have a mild loss in one and a profound loss in another. Mm. It actually also includes people, individuals who have a, um, both congenital and acquired loss. So when we think about uh, the characteristics of the learner, that's really important because if, um, those who have like a congenital loss have a very different learning history from those mm. who have prior experience with auditory and visual stimuli in their past. Um and then it also um, uh, includes those that have progressive loss as well. So any combination. Mm. The other important piece is that they're the majority of individuals. And I think the latest, um, we maintain like a, a child count type of thing. Like, yeah. uh, And so um, uh, I think that the latest annual counts um, show that there are about 85% of individuals who are deafblind also have additional other disabilities so um intellectual disability um might be a cog um uh motor or orthopedic type of impairments um communication and language so um they all, usually there are these complex learners who have more than just the deaf blindness going on and is that more so congenital means born with right and then acquired means they kind of got it after they were born essentially right yeah exactly and so is um well first off it, and i don't and i don't it's okay if you don't have exact numbers i didn't ask <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't we didn't talk about this beforehand so it's okay if i'm right in front of you but do they tend to be more congenital than acquired or is there a sort of a a, a balance there I, like a, you know how, how does that work yeah so um a lot of it, I, okay so like you said i don't have exact numbers but yeah. the, there is a, like uh there are um and in the and the actual causes or etiologies vary but yeah. um there, there are statistics that are available publicly available on the national mm -hmm. center for deaf blindness if anybody's interested but um yeah i would say that most most of it is um either um uh they're born with it but or it happens in during birth or near the time of birth um some um from some kind of a postnatal uh or condition or birth injury that's also possible um right. there are some like progressive conditions which are genetic but all, but actually cause uh lead to um impairment in vision and hearing at a later age, like after mm. adolescence. So they might have that vision and hearing when they're born, but due to the genetic um, condition would then begin to lose that later on in life. I see. The reason I ask is you said, was it like 85% seem to have intellectual disabilities or something like that? 
um, or at least other types of disabilities. So, mm. um, so uh, many have intellectual disabilities, but there might be also something like, you know, speech and language, um, orthopedic. And so there mm. might be a combination of different types of. And so, and I guess, you know, and the, the reason I, I wondered if it was, because what I'm wondering is, you know, could it, is it, it's probably, I'm just making an assumption here, but it seems like maybe the folks that have the congenital deaf blindness, they might be more likely to have those, you know, sort of multiple disabilities or whatnot, whereas someone who's acquired it, I mean, unless, of course, they acquired it in some sort of, you know, ridiculous injury or sort of accident or something that caused, you know, you know, sort of physical trauma. Um, you know, I, I would think that, um, you know, these folks maybe would, but maybe would be less likely to have an intellectual disability and then, and then develop one or like, like what, so maybe a better question is, I'm making a lot of assumptions here. So maybe <laughs> a better question is, is what are sort of, I've I've heard of sort of you know I, I can think of examples of sort of you know folks acquiring blindness for sure. There's lots of there's lots of um, you know kind of obvious ones out there. I, I work as a first responder, uh, you know you know, and so I know like burns and you know acid and you know chemicals that sort of thing and you know sunlight damage and you know look looking at an eclipse you know all that kind of fun stuff um, you know and then hearing you know you can think of just like loud noises or you know, maybe a head injury or 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 whatever. Um, what, what I guess what are other are what are sort of are there common kind common ways that folks kind of acquire deaf blindness? Um, so you kind of alluded to this idea that there's it's it when we think about it in relative terms, it's it's not that common. But um, anyway, there are okay. some type of genetic conditions. So for example, Usher syndrome, um, mm. which is um a relatively common <laughs> etiology of deaf blindness. Um uh, the the um, there are different types, but for example, an individual might be born with some hearing loss, but then they don't even know that it's Usher syndrome, which even though it's genetic, there's mm. a genetic cause, they wouldn't lose. In many cases, depending on the type, would not lose begin to lose vision until they were um, in adolescence, and so oh, that would be um, an instance where there might be some um, later onset. I see. So some of these kind of genetic syndromes have a sort of almost like a delayed kind of regression of it could be yeah and i hate to overgeneralize because there are like over you know probably over a, a thousand something identified etiologies of deaf blindness so it's wow. like something that actually um is it's not like we can say you know pinpoint and say that you know people that are with deaf blindness are going to be similar because in fact Again, mm -hmm. even the etiologies are are very yeah. very heterogeneous. Yeah, yeah, right. And with over a thousand, and it being such a low incidence sort of disability, anyway, you could be in a classroom of, you know, thirty kids with deaf blindness, and they'd all have a different etiology potentially. I know that actually, I never heard of a classroom with thirty. No, <laughs> I suppose not. But deaf blindness. Yeah. I don't think that exists. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I worked so the place that I was. And I don't know. I don't think they were all deafblind, but the place I was exposed to um, uh, children who were deafblind was in a was in a school for the deaf. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, obviously all the kids were deaf already. Um, and so that was sort of given, but only a few of them were, you know, had the blindness as well. Yes. Very interesting point, because all of the different states have, um, because of the fact that, it, you know, in the United States, all, every state has their own system, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of different approaches and um, uh, 
and ways that programs might look. So it differs very much from state to state. So like you said, in some states, there might be like schools for the deaf or schools for the blind, where you might see some kind of a concentration. And in other places, they might be dispersed throughout other types of um, neighborhood, district, that type of mm. school. And so you say there, there's, you know, there's these state deaf blindness programs all over the country. I, I never heard of them. And that, I mean, that's how I found you was through the the, the Nevada one. Um, are they, are, are so, so are the, all these state programs, are they all quite different from each other? Um, we are connected in kind of a network and mm. the sense that we have like, you know, it's like we have different pro- projects you know, we're all separate projects, but we all come together in like a community of practice and mm. we're connected to the National Center for Deafblindness. Mm. So um, the um, but these are grant funded by the Office of Special Education Department of Special um, Office of Education Department of Special Education. Yeah. And they are designed as technical assistance projects. So um, what we are intend to do is to build the knowledge and skills of people that work with individuals with deaf blindness. So we're not like direct service type of projects. We go in, we work with families, we work with teachers, we work with other agencies to build their skills um, so that they can be the ones to um, work with the individuals. So I had kind of like alluded to the fact that, you know, um, that a lot of not a lot of people are familiar with uh, working with individuals with deafblindness. Many states don't have any kind of like licensed credentialing or you know anything else related to it. Mm. So teachers and other service providers, um, including behavior analysts, will you know maybe not have had any in their in their career, maybe right. one or two. Um, and so because there's not uh, pro- programs or preparation programs specifically for the personnel these pro in many cases these projects can uh, be called in to um, give information and skill um, assistance with building skills in this particular area got it so most of your work isn't actually with kids who are deafblind it's where the service providers who uh yeah and we do do home and school specific child specific visits so like more intensive type of ta plans that are designed mm. um to uh around the needs of those children in their programs and their in their environments but um yeah with the adults uh i just took a quick tangent question that i just i was just sort of thinking about last night when we were going to do this interview um um is i'm curious deaf blindness is obviously in a lot of ways quite different from you know just being deaf um and uh you know i know i, I think most you know most folks in sort of the deaf community uh, you know communicate with sign language and and uh, you know and then there's various forms of sign language um but obviously um if you're deaf blind you know sign language you know maybe you know, isn't, isn't as useful, um, at least not on the receiving end. Um, and so I'm curious if there's a, if there's any sort of, um, um, well, the phrase is here. I mean, I'm curious how, if, if at all, how deafblind sort of kids, adults, whatever, uh, fit into sort of those communities like into like the deaf community or into you know i don't even know if there's a blind community uh but um um because i know there's there i know i know just my wife was a 
was a sign language interpreter uh, years ago and uh you know and and she's filled me in on a lot of sort of things about the deaf community and then i had some opportunities to work and work with some some deaf clients in the past and got to learn a little more about the community in that way and some some deaf staff which is really cool um um and they're 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 a real um um you know um what's the term i'm looking for um I think they just they just have a strong sort of connection to anyone that that you know that is deaf and and they want they want to make sure that you know those folks feel supported and can be part of their community. But are deaf? Do you know if deaf blind folks are 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 part of the deaf community? So um, some of them are, and mm. and so you know it's going to the communication characteristics and also the different um, like groups that people might be connected with uh, deaf blind people might be connected with are are very broad and diverse mm. i guess because the characteristics of the individuals are so diverse um one thing that i would say is that there are definitely some deafblind people who are connected with the deaf community and typically they we, they're they're called or thought of as like the deaf plus deaf plus meaning they have additional disabilities mm. um it, in addition to being deaf right. um and um, so I would say that there are some individuals who are, are closely connected to, to, to that, and there are opportunities um, for to be part of those groups. Um, I guess I think that because of the overall the population of individuals who are so deafblind are so, is so small that mm. it, it's not like they have, a, um, you know, a friend or social groups in many cases that get together on a, or they wouldn't have the ability to do that in the mm. Um, but I do think that there are some um, national level groups where, that do try to encourage people to at least be connected to mm. each other and to resources. Um, I would th say that really the greatest um, similarity or connection among people who are deafblind is, is this um, uh, focus on uh, additional modes or methods of communication. So of course, it's not just like you said, just sign language, but mm. there are a lot of tactile strategies. Yes. Um, because if you're not getting a lot of your information, or you're getting at least a reduced amount of information through, you know, the typical um, pathways for learning, like our vision and our hearing, right? Mm. Um, the, our other senses that are available to interact with the environment is our sense of touch. So mm. That includes things like um, tactile signing. <laughs> hmm. So there are some individuals who um, uh, use tactile sign, but it also includes like um, touch cues. It might include um, uh, like haptic type of feedback. It, it might include um, object symbols um, and, and other types of tactile symbols and things like that. Sorry, what was the one you said before the, you said tactile signing, and then you said another one that, that I hadn't heard of before, um, and, and I forget what it was already. <laughs> uh, can you just, can you just let's list those modes again that you just said? <laughs> you said like three modes of communication, and one of them wasn't familiar to me. 
Uh, but like, I think it maybe I said like haptic feedback. That one, yeah, yeah. Like getting... What what is that? What is that? So not not necessarily like a full mode of communication, but a way of getting extra information from your yeah. environment. So if yeah. you think of things that like provide some kind of like vibratory feedback, mm. <laughs> um, things that can actually provide, yeah, that and that and that mode. Um, and, and what was the word you used? Haptic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, I had I'm not I haven't heard that term before. <laughs> okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So. <clears throat> What is it, you know, because I, I imagine there are, you know, there, there, there have always been lots of resources for, you know, deaf, deaf folks and for those with hearing impairments. And there's been, there's always been lots and lots of resources for the blind. You know, in Canada, we have the CNIB that's, you know, that, you know, they're, they're, they've been around for, for, for decades providing, you know, resources for the blind. Why? Why wouldn't folks just use the deaf, the the deaf resources and the blind resources? Why? 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 Why do they need you folks? Well, that's a good question too. Uh, and they actually do use those resources. However, um, resources that are specialized for individuals who are deaf blind are important because of the fact that it is not just um, a simple summative or additive. Um, issue. So for mm. example, you can't just say, yeah, they're deaf or they're blind. We're going to address these two things separately. It's really multiplicative. So if you think about like the, um, uh, the those are both of our primary senses for learning, there's an interaction between them that really mm. limits how you get information about your environment when both of those, um, when you have losses in both areas. So mm. for example, um, I'm not getting information from auditory and visual information. I have to find a whole nother mode. And it's not just about um, getting the services from each unique one. Um, and historically, the um, services for individuals who are deaf and those for individuals who are blind are not um, that necessarily that closely connected. <laughs> There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting Black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human Expressions gives Black and Brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for Black and Brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is Nevada. Hmm, hmm. Okay, and that makes sense. Um, you know, and and uh, and uh, that they would draw on both, but then sort of need, you know, that kind of combined approach. Um, now, one thing when we talked was that before was that it sounded like you know, kind of bringing the ABA piece into it. That there's not a lot of there's not a lot of folks doing ABA with 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 uh, with the deafblind population. Like I think you had said that. There's these technical assistance centers, you know, all over the country, but but it but that yours was the only one with behavior analysts. Was that <laughs> I heard or? Well, I'm not totally sure that that's right. the case, but it it might be. <laughs> right. Um. Yeah, there is not a big overlap between uh, behavior analysis and deaf blindness, at least not currently. So mm. interestingly, um, 
in the past, there were actually um, more research that was done with with some overlap. So there was quite a bit of work, some multiple studies anyway, that were done in applied behavior analysis that uh, had participants with um, deaf blindness. Mm. Um, but that was in the 80s. Mm. <laughs> and oh, since wow. um, it really has... Um, the field has really changed in the sense that uh, there was this greater focus on behavior analytic strategies um, and systematic instruction, and there were some publications in you know um, uh, journals related to behavior analysis. And there seems to be less now. There's actually a very low number of experimental studies and intervention type studies being published in the field of deafblindness at, at all. Mm. Um, and not a lot of current research. Most of it has moved away from that, those behavior analytic practices. So I don't know why, mm. <laughs> but that's, that is, that is definitely a, a, a fact. <laughs> so what are then you know, and I, and I know you can't speak to sort of every every state organization, but mm -hmm. you know, w what are most folks using? You know, as far as you know, uh, treating, working with the working with this population, if if, if it's well, not ABA. Yeah, good question. So I actually did a study that's going to come out. I don't know when, but in the mm. <laughs> in sometime soon. Yep. It's related to the practices of the projects, and mm. so I actually wanted to know. Um, this was based on the survey, and then it was, um, uh, but the, but it was also looking at, about at what um, technical assistance providers. Uh, their perceived use of like uh, systematic response prompting mm. and systematic instruction, but also if the, uh, um, if they weren't doing that, if they reported not doing that, what other practices were they using for yes. So what we discovered was that um, there were, sorry, I don't have the percentages in front of me, but it's a relatively small percentage that um, um, were actually using that or at least um, training other people to to implement mm. those procedures. Mm -hmm. um, and then of those people, we didn't stop there because what we really wanted to know was, okay, if, they, if, if individuals were re actually reporting using this type of instruction yep. um, for, you know, um, transfer of stimulus control, then who would then, um, what could they actually answer questions about those strategies? Mm. Um, and turns out like only, um, a, I think, um, three people answered the questions about the procedures um, in a way that actually demonstrated that they would be able to implement those those procedures um, correctly. Hmm. Um, and so, which is kind of troubling, right? Hmm. Uh, so, so then my next question was, well, maybe they actually are, are using some other strategies. And what we found was that um, individuals in the deaf blind network um, really have a lot of strengths in adapting materials um, to meet the unique needs and um, like, you know, for strategies like tactile strategies, mm -hmm. and how to adapt materials to make them accessible in that way um, and to change the environment. And there was a really heavy focus also on um, using naturalistic approaches. So they tried to mm. really incorporate um, all of the environmental variables that were already existing. But what it came down to is what they said, what they described was um, taking a child-guided approach. 
Um, and what it turns out child guided approach meant on further question, you know, on further questioning was um, thinking about communication, but rather than um, teaching communication in a systematic way, it was following the, 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 um, the lead of the child and basically mimicking their uh, actions so that they felt heard, which is clearly important, but also could take us forever. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about somebody who needs uh, direct and systematic instruction because the only information they might be perceiving is that which we bring to them. Hmm. Um, so that was kind of interesting to see. Yeah, no, for sure. So, again, I think I think also, you know, unless you've you know you know actually been exposed to sort of clients with who are deaf blind again you have a lot you can have a lot of assumptions and you and, and it and it seems like maybe all, all we have to be thinking about you know it seems from the outside that that maybe all we have to think about is okay we you know, they can't see you know let's just get this tactile thing going and 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 bob's your uncle but there's um there's uh there's often a lot of other things going on with these kids um 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 so I was so like for example I know the one one of the two children that I spent the most time with was a, a young fellow um, who had charge syndrome um, and charge syndrome is another I mean these this other thing I think is that these there's these 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 sort of congenital type syndromes that are also uber rare um, and have their own sort of you know group so there's a whole charge syndrome association and so on and so forth you know are, are you are you working with those kinds of groups as well yeah actually we are <laughs> but, um as you talked about charge syndrome for example and they have a, like you said a whole a whole a whole network um it's actually one of the top ideologies of deaf blindness mm. <laughs> highest um charge syndrome and um so yeah like you said they have their own group um we the networks are connected so they're very closely there's a lot of uh collaboration with the charge syndrome foundation and so with that in mind like i know and again it's been it's been a long time since i, I worked with that lad but charge is an acronym um and i know i think i know h is like heart defects and and uh and there's a few different things in there uh, and I think one of the letters, is it R maybe, or one of the letters relates to sort of, um, you know, more kind of the, the behavioral or kind of potentially like intellectual disabilities. But a lot of the other ones are, are, are all medical stuff, you know? Um, um, you know, things that, you know, for many parents are going to be probably a lot more of a priority. Like, like I know this one fella had like, like 20 odd heart surgeries before he was two years old or something like that, you know? Does first, I guess, first question is: Does your center kind of deal with all those other things? Or are you just are you just there for the systematic instruction teaching part, or or do you work with all the factors that sort of affect all these different ideologies? So we work with all the all of the different factors, and so we really it's all individualized to the mm. to what the family or the team uh, needs to support that child, and so we actually offer strategies across domains. So it mm. might be instruction, but a lot of times it is you know um, self determination skills, or sometimes people just want you know how do I access information? Mm. <laughs> um, so it could be a really broad range of of needs um that people have um and is there kind of a and this is not a the happiest of questions but is, is there kind of a 
a general kind of because I mean if, if charge syndrome is one of the you know most common ones, which is you know a rare thing in and of itself. Um, again, with all these sort of you know life-threatening kind of medical things going on all the time. Are, are, is there a, a generally a, a fairly lower a lower life expectancy of of sort of deaf blind folks or um it there can be it varies again according mm. to etiology of which mm. there are thousands of and course. you know you know i i said that yeah that charge is one of the most common but when i say common i mean one of the most <laughs> common like nas- nationwide right. meaning there might be a few in a state <laughs> right right um and you know oftentimes it'll be like you know some it'll be uh an ideology that there's it's literally they're the only one that i've ever heard of i have to look them i have to often have, mm-hmm. to, have to look them up myself and research them like there's one of eight people that have ever been diagnosed with you know this particular you know mm-hmm. genetic syndrome or whatever mm-hmm. So yes, it can vary in the characteristics, including the medical um, mm. characteristics, really, really broadly. They it, oftentimes, like you said, if there are complex um, healthcare needs, um, which is common, it can mean that somebody might be in and out of the hospital a lot. Yeah. So obviously, that can affect instruction, but more importantly, quality of life and yeah. the um, focus of the the family and the team. So. Obviously, the um, health um, comes first, um, and so when you have a lot of health issues and um, that you're dealing with, um, families, of course, that becomes their first priority, and mm-hmm. that's that that stability and health wise is going to be the most important. So, you know, a lot of times um, when things are very when there's a lot of complex needs, a family might not even know that there are. They might hear. Uh, uh, hearing and vision impairments might not even be diagnosed until yes. later on because yes. they are so um, focused on the immediate needs of their yes. child. Yes, yes, yeah, that, that, yeah. I definitely want to ask about that in a second because um, I, I guess what I'm, I'm thinking about too is, um, you know, most most behavior analysts that are listening probably work in you know the autism world and we know certainly from the autism world and probably from from most worlds working with kids that early intervention is you know going to always be more effective than later um mm-hmm. but i would i would surmise and just from from what you've already just said that there's probably a lot of these kids that don't get early intervention because their entire early intervention life is spent dealing with you know the medical side of things and and maybe the 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 actual vision and hearing stuff isn't even diagnosed like they might even in fact they might it might even be sort of assumed that maybe there's you know there's there, there there's some autism in there that's what's going on and that's why these this folk person isn't communicating and and whatnot so what i guess first question might be what does so teaching is different with 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 these kids right obviously um, so what, well, I think first, I guess the first question is, 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 is how, how, how are these kids assessed? Um, you know, I mean, I think the kid, obviously the kids that are, have the acquired syndromes, it's more obvious because, you know, everything's fine or somewhat fine. And then, and then, and then things start to change. They're now not responding when they used to, or they're now not you know, they're now running into something when they didn't before. And, and so, you know, there, there's obvious signs of those things, but when you have these kids that are, you know, have a lot of, you know, these physical, um, you know, and sort of, again, heart problems or other sort of, 
you know, major life-threatening things going on. And, and folks, and you, like you said, families might not even be looking at that. How does sort of, um, I guess, number one, how does sort of, how, how and it's just maybe anecdotes, but, you know, what what do you sort of hear about sort of how folks kind of are are are, are discovering that their kids are deafblind, and then and then what 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 are the kind of assessments that are out there? Um. So. Okay, so assessment is obviously like this huge, hugely broad topic. So sure. when we talk about assessment, there's like so many different kinds of assessment. If we right. think about just assessment for, um, like, um. Uh, learning skills, cognitive abilities, mm. like for vision and hearing themselves, for communication. So all of those are basically assessed separately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and one of the interesting things is, you know, it, for, from my from my viewpoint, is that a lot of kids are with deafblindness are 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 um, identified as having um, multiple disabilities, um, mm. which. Is often not really disputable, but in most cases, what we think of as you know as a as multiple disabilities, as intellectual disability, and then other things in combination with that. Right. So what we, at least under the, you know the the federal definition under IDEA. So what we're look actually looking at is there are no um, um, norm reference tests that really include mm. individuals that have been validated for individuals who are deafblind. So mm. any of these. Um, tests that we do are going to be um, estimates Mm. (laughs) they don't have high validity with this population Mm. so um, what that leads us to is uh, more uh, is the need really for more well obviously we need more research in the area Mm. but also more uh, um, assessment in the individual areas so one of the Mm. things that we typically look at is like um, for vision or like learning media like what are the ways that this child is accessing information about the world mm-hmm. um and then um uh, for like communication um it's oftentimes really important for individuals who are not like communicating in the conventional type of you know vocal verbal type of way mm. um to find modes of communication that can be um i guess systematized <laughs> To have mm-hmm. to actually mm-hmm. be like a, a a language, right? Um, and so there are some tools that are out there that were not necessarily developed from. Um, if we think about like the t- typical uh, tools that come out of behavior analysis, um, right. might be have starting points like baseline levels that are really um, beyond where uh, many of these individuals are going to be um, beginning or access to access. Mm. Um, so. There are tools that can be used um, to kind of identify things like uh, for pre-symbolic uh, communicators, which mm. is what do you mean by pre-symbolic? Um, so we typically think of like uh, uh, um, we have these um, like not in conventional verbal vocal language, but also not even through more concrete symbols like um, object symbols or mm-hmm. line drawing symbols or photo symbols. So um, we think about, uh, you know, at the very earliest pre-symbolic level, these kind of communicative responses or behaviors that we end up being shaped into communicative responses, like the um, like crying of an infant, right? Mm. We have these kind of more... Um, 
um, respondent type of behaviors that uh, then develop into communication over time as they're shaped. Um, so we might be starting there. We might look at how uh, things like touch cues. So how can we be deliver some information about the world that is very concrete, like on that individual uh, person. And so we think about the type of characteristics or variables that are related to the activity itself. Like what can mm. I, what is going to tell me about if I'm going to have, for example, um, suction and for this medical procedure, like what is it about that um, procedure that the individual might be able to get information about? So we think about like mm. the physical location on the body where it might occur, which would be, um, you know, on the chest. Um, and then, you know, what it might actually uh, feel like would be, you know, a, a tapping sensation. So we can deliver information about it by giving a cue that mm. is that cue on the body. Mm. Yeah. And again, I think about this, <laughs> the, the kid with charge, because he had a feeding tube mm -hmm. um, as well. And I think that was a sort of a common thing as well for, because I think for him, it was, uh, it was like a, you know, it was something, it was something that couldn't be taught. Like he, yeah. he was, he was never going to learn to eat because he, he literally couldn't swallow because he didn't have the muscles to do it. Or it was some sort of atrophy or I, I'm not really sure what the physical characteristic was, but, and so you might, so you might use some of those touch cues to sort of, you know, um, let him know where the, what, where the tube's going in or let him know that he's got, right. you know, th those sorts of things could happen. So as a touch cue then. And and I, I, we're going to kind of get into teaching here in a second here. Cause I think this is the thing, the main thing a lot of folks want to know about. But is a touch cue different than from like a sort of a, like a physical prompt? So, so yes. Yeah. So when we think about like a physical prompt, we're giving an individual information about the behavior that we want them to to. Um, to perform and not this is not necessarily about that. This is about receptive communication, how we can help the individual to receptively get information about, the, about what's going to happen. With prompting, you know, if, if I'm touching your arm, it's generally because I want you to move your arm in a certain direction, like a partial physical prompt might be, you know, a, a tap on the elbow or something like that, or a full physical prompt might be me guiding your hand to sort of do some sort of behavior, like you said. Whereas a tactile cue, I'm not I'm not telling you to do something with your arm. I'm telling you that something's maybe going to happen to your arm or I'm going to put something on your arm or or you know or that sort of thing is that kind of how they would be different? Um yeah, so we first like the first thing you described would be a response prompt, right? And then of course we have stimulus prompts which also give information about yep. another stimulus, but but it's more like in the context it's in a different context. So mm. like when we talk about um yeah, like you said a touch cue, it's uh, it's for receptive communication. Mm, gotcha, gotcha. So let's uh let 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 let's let's dive into that now, the sort of the teaching and kind of communication piece. Um uh I guess. So how, how do we teach these folks? <laughs> so I guess the, the, the most important thing that I think that people would agree on is that when we're talking about individuals who are deaf blind, we have to really um, think about systematic and direct instruction. So mm. we don't have a loss of incidental learning. So most of us are getting tons of information <laughs> through our, uh, you know, visual and auditory information. Yep. And it's mostly incidental learning we're watching right. people how people are interacting with the world we're watching how other stimuli yes. like interact with each other and yes. that's how we learn right. um but when we're not getting that information and there's no way for us to access that information mm. we are really the people become really reliant on the on the 
um, tactile sensory system and the information that somebody brings directly to them. So Mm. in order to learn, I have to have direct engagement with the stimuli. Mm. So can you give an example? So for example, we think about a, um, um, let's see. Um, like I would typically, uh, learn a lot about communication just by how, um, or a young child would just by watching their siblings interact with their parents. Mm-hmm. Right. And they, they can engage in imitative behavior to copy some of the different mm. sounds and the gestures and all of that. Um, if I'm not getting any of that information, either any of the auditory information or visual information, I can't see that. I can't hear that. So how do I get, how do I act on, um, another individual to, get change in my environment right if mm. i'm if there's no way to see other people doing that mm-hmm. um so the re so what happens is that a, a teacher a communication partner whatever it is is going to come directly to that individual and then um they have to have some kind of a a shared um experience right which i'm not getting just by doing it alongside somebody else we mm. have to be physically engaged in the same activity and i have to be able to um physically uh, sense that other people in a tactile manner are also engaged in that activity. So we're focusing together on something like it's joint tactile information mm. rather than if you think about it as like um, shared attention or joint attention visually, right? Yep. I can't, I don't have that information. Wow. So it, it's, it's pretty, I mean, it's a lot more intrusive in a way, you know, I mean, it, or, or it can be perceived as intrusive. I mean, and again, I think this is again where biases come into play. You know, I think if I if, if I were deafblind, you know, it's possible that I would not mind if people are touching because it's the only way I'm, I'm able to engage other humans, you know. Um, and so I'm wondering about sort of like how, you know, things like, you know, consent and assent and that kind of thing kind of plays into this because it's, you know, you're, you're, you know, we always hear about sort of, you know, don't touch unless you don't have to when it's, you know, when it's sort of, you know, regular, not regular, but sort of more typical kind of systematic instruction and certainly working with, um, you know, neurodiverse kids and whatnot. They, it's really encouraged to sort of, you know, not put your hands on people as it were, unless you absolutely have to, or, you know, there's, or maybe it's some sort of, you know, crisis intervention, sort of risk of injury or whatnot. Um, How's that work with, with, with this population where you got to touch them all the time? So there are different kinds of touch and that's Mm. a great point because you it can absolutely still be intrusive. Like if you think of somebody and you can't even see anybody coming towards you and somebody swoops in and like grabs your hands and manipulates yeah. you to do something, it can be very anxiety producing. Absolutely. Um, so that's still a thing, but there are ways that you want to show somebody that first of all, that you're approaching, right? So if you mm-hmm. think about um, rather than just kind of swooping in, taking things away, touching them, um, but um, think about like a child on on a on a bed or a chair. You can mm. feel somebody approaching <laughs> mm. um, by if I touch near them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as somebody that has some like residual hearing, um, you can also give cues and make sure that they have enough time to process that type mm. of auditory information or visual information, whatever they might have, um, and then give them enough time to respond to that. So you don't just kind of come in and and take over. Um, some other 
common suggestions in the field of deaf blindness are instead of like um, hand over hand, where we're basically just making somebody do something and I can't even see what I'm doing necessarily, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm, do something mm -hmm. where it's a hand under hand. So people still have the mm -hmm. ability to remove a, 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 their assent when they, or when yes. um, they're not interested in that activity or for whatever reason. And this is something it's, and this is something that's sort of, at least kind of from the, you know, the, the sort of the neurodiversity community, this is something that's recommended anyway with anyone that, you know, we shouldn't be doing hand over hand at any time. Uh, because like you said, it's, it's just easier to sort of, you know, say back off if it's underhand. So yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think too, it's really important to, you know, like one of the things that comes that that's great that I think that is a um, really beneficial that comes out of the deafblind community is this idea of um, uh, following the individual's lead in communication. And so mm. it doesn't mean that we don't want to be systematic and that we don't want to help them to get to you know to correct answers. But mm -hmm. at the same time, we want do want to be responsive and to acknowledge people's communicative intent. So mm. for example, if somebody pulls away, right, then we would uh, acknowledge that as uh, withdrawal of assent. Um, but also if, um, try to let other people initiate. So once you introduce yourself and let somebody know that you're there, which probably is going to be through a touch, but it might be like mm. a non-intrusive touch on the sh shoulder, right? Wait for them to, to show that they are interested in continuing that exchange. Like are, mm. um, looking for behaviors that might be more subtle in many cases, like right. a, mo a movement toward the individual, yes. a change in respiration. Um, mm. uh, you know, um, it could be like movement of a body part that is, you know, in, in a certain way, it could be orienting so that any residual turning the head. So any residual hearing would be, you know, um, in the direction of the individual right, they're communicating right, with. Right, right. So subtle behaviors are often what we're looking for. Wow. I would, I, I think just having ADHD, I would struggle with this population to, because it, it requires so much focus and, 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 uh, and sort of attention to sort of these sort of subtle pieces there. Um, I, I, I noticed that the, the cat tail in the picture, P folks won't be able to see on the recording, but I'm getting a little giggle <laughs> on this cat head that keeps appearing. Um, um, yeah, I mean, is that, I mean, is that something alone that you teach? You're teaching folks is just, you know, observing in a different way because observation, every, everything is, must be, is so different with, 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 with this group. So what's that, is that something you're, you, you work with people on is just changing how they observe things because i wouldn't think to look at breath or head turn or you know the arm just moved a little bit and and, and think that means anything um yeah so i do think that you have to it is a, a, a unique skill to be able to look at those more um subtle differences but at the same time i do think that behavior analysts might have strength in this in the sense that they are trained to look for changes in behavior right True. um and so we're looking at really differences it's going to differ from one person you know obviously yep. to another really really widely but at the same time we can say that um, this is what is happening in a typical situation. Now, when we introduce a new stimuli, what changes? A stimuli, mm -hmm. new stimuli or a new stimulus, what changes mm -hmm. in no, the individual? That, 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 uh, that definitely makes sense. So, because, you know, it's, it, it seems like it, it, it's, everything's kind of, for, for, for behavior analysts, there's no sort of, you know, uh, sort of competency in this area. 
you know, one might quickly be, you know, stressed and overwhelmed by by this population because all the tools you're used to using wouldn't work the same way. So like doing a preference assessment, you know, laying out things and letting them pick it, free operant or whatever, you know, like what's sort of the, the sort of um, kind of case conceptualization look like, you know, when, when, when you're kind of going through that? Okay, that yeah, that's an interesting question. So there are different modifications and some things actually already exist. So sometimes you have to look outside of those more conventional tools and do a mm. broader search of some of the literature. So for example, there are some preference assessment um, methods um, and procedures that have been used with individuals who have more, who are more impacted, including those with deaf blindness. And it might mm. be rather than a more um, commonly used like paired choice or, or mm. you know, multiple stimulus type preference assessment, we might be looking at a single um, stimulus presented at a time and looking mm. at something that is um, uh, uh, more in engagement based. Mm. Um, so we might think think about it as, yes. far as um, you know, present. Say we might try to, we also might try to think about it from uh, the different sensory, the perspective of the different sensory systems. So are mm. there certain types of stimuli that the individual is more likely to respond to? Mm. Um, and part of it just might be because if you think about like vision, something that relies on me using my vision, I might not find interesting at all if I'm not mm. getting any visual feedback, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so we might try to find stimuli that uh, across all of our different sensory systems. It could be mm. like, one could be swinging, right? One could be, we might have some that we use for vision, which would be like light up toys and things that move. We have some things that might make from sound that might have, um, you know, auditory information, um, things that like, you know, have vibratory feedback. So we might look at a range of different types of items that we might be assessing for preference mm. um, and separate them that way. So we can have, we can look at, first of all, um, the, the, types of stimuli that the individual respond responds to and we can also look at duration of engagement uh, with hmm. those different types of stimuli hmm. so and so okay and so yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense so i mean you know present one thing at a time number one um and and certainly thinking about all those different kinds of um you know um methods of input like a, 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 the haptic thing I'm, I'm i'm stuck on now it's a great <laughs> word number one but also I, but i also it just it makes a lot of sense there's a lot of there's a lot more things out there now you know that probably weren't out 20 years ago that vibrate and or that or that you know make different sorts of you know sort of sensory input that that, that you wouldn't have been able to get in the past Right. Like we think of things as usually just like, you know, the, the puzzle toy and the toys that we play with and we're touching. Yeah. Right. But in reality, we can think of like, if we think of like proprioceptive and our vestibulatory mm -hmm. systems, right. Think about swinging, you know, that's a stimulus too, yeah. right. That, that is completely doesn't require any vision or hearing. So. Um, and it almost makes me wonder if, <laughs> you know, some of these, some of these, you know, things that are out there, you know, and again, it, it, again, it goes back to sort of bias and assumption, you know, you know, that there's only one way to play with this thing, you know, uh, but for someone who's deaf blind, they're going to have a whole different experience with this object that I'm going to have with this object. And there may be aspects of that object that are really reinforcing to them that I wouldn't care at all about. Um, yes. You know, and so like like the vibration, for example, well, I mean, certainly the, I don't want to. 
I don't want to insinuate that some folks may have very well may very well hate the vibration too. I thought well, <laughs> if everyone's going to love vibration, but <laughs> but you know that that the, these things have aspects of them that you wouldn't think would be all that you know exciting if you weren't deaf blind. But if you are, they suddenly become you know uh, just a whole different sort of interaction with the environment. Do you kind of find that a lot. Yeah, definitely. Um, the most important thing being too that you know um, we got to think about the individual and how they're unique how they uniquely interact with the mm -hmm. environment but that's the part of the thing about the preference assessment right if we prevent present lots of different types of stimuli we can start to see if there are patterns in the type of stimuli that they respond to like mm -hmm. what systems are more developed what and um, as well as what do they prefer if mm -hmm. we can't prefer something we're probably not going to prefer something that we're not <laughs> that we're not actually accessing right <laughs> And, and with with teaching, is generally initially the focus on communication? So communication is one of these most important, I, I think, one of the most important skills, right? It's it, yeah. across all different domains and all different settings in our life. Yes. Um, and it, you know, obviously includes both these receptive and expressive. And um, if we we still need to be able to um, engage and learn information, get information about our world, even if we're not doing it in this conventional type of way. So what does that look like? Mm. Um, yeah, it, I think it's um, oftentimes one of the things that is um, most focused on in the in the deafblind community, like mm. how can we get uh, tell people about what's going to happen to them mm -hmm. <laughs> and how can we um, have a consistent way for other for people to um, know what that individual is communicating so for example um, if we take an individual who is um, um, say we're looking at uh, changes in behavior like um, uh, moving a little leg or mm. a grimace, right? Yep. So that's really hard to interpret for somebody who is not the typical communication partner. Like yes. the parents or the regular teacher is going to be like, well, when she does that, right. when she shakes her leg, it means you she wants you to rub her leg, right? Yes. Mom knows that, but does anybody else? Right. <laughs> How do we turn that into a system? And one of the ways, the cool things that we can do is um, to, uh, you know, like make a communication diction. Yes. Are you a BCBA supervisor looking to streamline your practice? Or maybe you're working towards your BCBA and need to find the right supervisor. Homehouse offers tools that make supervision so much more enjoyable for both supervisor and supervisee. For supervisors, they offer easy meeting documentation, competency tracking, monthly verification forms, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, Homehouse has a field work tracker with built-in auditing, monthly verification forms, a curriculum, quizzes, and more. If you're looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where you can connect with BCBAs until you find your perfect match, kind of like professional dating. For more information, go to whomhouse.com forward slash speak or search whomhouse on Google. The second secret word is tactile. One of the things about having uh, uh, somebody who communicates with a pre-symbolic level at a pre-symbolic level of communication is that you have to find ways to make it systematic mm. um, so that the, so that any type of communication is um, consistent across right. communication partners. Um, and it becomes more like a formal language rather than 
than just, uh, you know, a, a random behavior. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and then that way we can actually use some of those behaviors that um, we can use uh, behavioral like strategies such as shaping to do something like to to shape a behavior like a leg movement movement into something that is more uh, intentionally communicative. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, I'm gonna document gotcha. that is by using communication their uh, other communication partners will know what those um, behaviors, um, uh, the communica- communicative function of those behaviors. Mm-hmm. Okay. So and that makes sense for like sort of, and that, make, that makes me think of the stuff you said earlier about sort of, you know, being child led or whatever, uh, you know, so if you know, sort of that, if you can see that there are sort of some attempts on their part to, to, uh, to communicate, then you can try to try to take those attempts and shape them into something, you know, that might be, mm-hmm. you know, more useful across the board. Is that the idea? Um, yeah. And so, uh, um, I think one of the things is that for behavior analysts in particular can be really difficult mm. to um to to think of where to start so yes. we typically think you know it's easy to say okay well i'm going to start with line drawings right yes. <laughs> it's like um you know because they're not they don't have conventional language but that's not necessarily the appropriate um uh simple right. type of of system for everybody so what do we do and well one mm. thing is that there are some specific types of assessments we can do for example the communication matrix that is doesn't come from the behavioral Hmm. Uh, literature, but is behavior analytic in nature in the sense that it uses um, uh, principles of reinforcement to new and shape new behaviors, hmm. but also starts at like the pre-intentional behaviors uh, is appropriate for individuals who are intention- hmm. you intentionally communicate, unconventional communication that's used intentionally, and then also conventional communication that is used intentionally, but is not yet symbolic. So that really is multiple levels of communication mm. that all is before the most concrete symbol, um, you know, what we think of as mm. object type symbols even. Um, so it can actually identify those types of uh, communicative behaviors and then give specific uh, examples of strategies and starting points at each of those levels. So it's a great tool in that sense. Mm. So what what actually is the communication matrix? Like how does that work? Um. So yeah. So it is actually an assessment. Um. It is not a norm at reference schema, but more of a um, of a uh, observational type of assessment. Um. And you can get it online. It's actually hmm. uh, relatively inexpensive. But the great thing about it is that it it does um, allow you a, a tool to have to start it on like the cool. Now you talked to you talked about kind of eventually getting to sort of the more kind of concrete sort of symbols. And and so we hear a lot about tangible symbols. Um, Well, maybe before we even get into tangible symbols, uh, I I was reading your, um, your, uh, uh, I guess it was, was it, was it your dissertation? The, uh, the, uh, the evaluation of the system. Of uh, the study prompts, on that one. Or oh, that yeah, yeah, study? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, and, and it, I know you refer to the, okay. Yeah. And you refer to the, the matrix in there, but you also refer to, um, um, something that, that brought me back to grad school. Um, and that was the, <laughs> uh, 
uh, Buckelman and Miranda symbol assessment. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I mentioned, but uh, oh, yeah. Miranda's uh, a, pro a prof at UBC, um, and uh, where I where I did my undergrad, and so we 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 got some bonus AAC classes with her that other programs probably didn't get, and so learned a little bit about this, but. <laughs> what does what what does a symbol assessment look like and kind of how do you do one of those so a symbol assessment is uh done to identify the level uh, the symbolic level of the individual currently uh to find a to help design you know a mm. communicator um and so when we think about um you know symbols we can it can range from you know abstract symbols like we're Number they're concrete, and we think of it as like line drawings. But there's a whole continuum from like a, a, an object symbol. Um, there's multiple different types of object symbols too: digital objects, pictures, uh, you know, mm. actual objects, uh, photos, which might include like um, photos of, and, and even within that, there's a continuum of abstractedness where we think about uh, the most concrete photo being right. a photo of the actual item that an individual is using. Uh, Right. So it can white photo. It could be a photo of a similar object. It could be a photo of uh, an object that the individual has never seen and then differs in some way, even though it's still a concrete mm. photo of a different um, uh, object that has the same function. So, um, and then of course, mm. line drawings too can be very um, uh, more concrete to, to more abstract. So this huge continuum of types of symbols and what this does is provides a way to uh, systematically assess the type of symbol that the individual currently understands to create a um, solution um, and also plan for instruction that meets. Hmm. So, so what does that look like for someone that's say, kind of more on the more kind of I could see like if you've got some partial hearing or some partial sight how you might be able to you know do a little more but what's that look like on, on an individual who's you know essentially got total vision and hearing loss like how, how, how do you how do you even know like how, how do you even how do you, how do you know that they recognize the symbol like, how, how do you figure that out <laughs> yeah so one of the first things is that we want to look at uh, functions and so we would look at um, does the individual have a, a way of responding do their behavior change in some way to show that they know what to do with an item so first of all I would choose the symbols that I'm going to ass um, assess from this list of items that they had functional mm -hmm. you I might say um, the individual understands what to do with the jacket because when we get up when I get out the jacket and I um, rub the jacket on his arm he puts out his arm to put his arm in the sleeve. Um, it might be that when, um, you know, I uh, get out of a cup um, and present the cup um, that the individual uh, opens his mouth or goes to reach for the cup or moves the cup to his mouth, something like that. Um, <laughs> the interesting thing mm -hmm. is that when I keep saying I'm presenting the items to the individual, that's the kind of interesting part, because if we're mm -hmm. not seeing it and we're not uh, the item, how do we know it's being presented? And Think about like the uh, presenting right. it in a way so that they get some tactile information. So it actually, when you know mm. I'm presenting uh, symbols to to a child, I might have an array of symbols or two symbols or one symbol, whatever it is, out on the tray in front of them. 
to the end or to whatever part of their body it is that they use to um, select symbols or to explore things. Um, if it's with their hands, I might um, actually uh, move their Show them to show them that that item's there and help them to first tactilely mm. explore that item. So there is an initial tactile exploration mm. before there's even any kind of, uh, there can be any kind of um, mm. uh, selection or acknowledgement of what that item is. So if there's more than one, you have to guide them through tactile mm. exploration of more than one item. Um, in some individuals, they might not even use um, their hands or their arms, but they part interact with the mm. environment or explore depending on their on their skills and characteristics and so it might be that i you know touch yeah. it to their arm or their cheek or something else. um and then move on to um the next day so i would so, go ahead no no you don't finish <laughs> i was gonna say that Sorry. you know there are also ways of thinking i'm not, i wouldn't be presenting and asking um uh you know you know show me show me the um you know asking a question that it would require some kind of a, 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 a you know, vocal response. I would be looking for, again, these changes in, right. in behavior. <laughs> um, to a uh, motoric response and alternative response when that was what was needed. Um, so not expecting everybody to just answer in the same way. Hmm. So, 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 so you do your simple assessment, you kind of determine that you're going to need sort of, maybe you need... Maybe you decide that you need, you determine that you need the object that is the same as the object. So, you know, it's, you're, you're teaching, I don't know, um, ice cream scoop. <laughs> you're going to use an ice cream scoop. Um, does your assessment tell you that they know that's an ice cream scoop? Or does, your, or does the assessment just tell you that, you know, they can interact with the ice cream scoop and then your next job is to teach them that that's an ice cream scoop? Do you know what I mean? Or, or are you, or are you, mm -hmm. or is so, the idea with the assessment that they know that's an ice cream scoop and then you teach them how to communicate that? Yeah, exactly. So it means that they recognize that, that symbol, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're using it for communicative purposes yet. Um, really to have, mm. to have some kind of like idiosyncratic um, for the skills to be more idiosyncratic. So like I might recognize, um, well, I had a particular child who recognized, for example, um, her cup, um, her spoon um, as photo mm. symbols. But then in some and other items with she didn't have as much experience with, um, she was mm. at the object. Different types of symbols in some cases. Um, I think if that's true too of you know anybody who's learning language you know I use um you know you have a, a a very young child who might recognize you know their name but with other things they actually only they recognize you know photos or or other types of um, line drawings of you know animals for example but they wouldn't recognize the you know the abstract word cat written out as letters for so so then, now that you've figured out the symbol, how 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 are you teaching? Is it is the teaching now more similar to kind of you know standard kind of you know functional communication training, or is are there still some some nuance to it all? So I actually think that that's one of the ways that that, um, that behavior analysts are particularly well prepared to use systematic um, to to would be to use you know more systematic procedures to deliver instruction. Um, mm. 
rather than just letting the child uh, lead the process, um, because we also want to make sure that we're efficient, right? And being systematic about it helps us to, you know, uh, move along. Um, uh, one of the things that I think is most different would be this idea that we need to make sure that the cues and the prompts that we're using in our instruction are accessible to the individual. So if I'm not getting that, you know, we typically would give mm -hmm. our instructions um, vocally, but we might also need to give um, different types of tactile cues. And I talked about, you know, helping the child to uh, see the materials and uh, the, that were there um, in a tactile manner, um, but they might need some to be taught how to do some tactile that we're using response prompts, our tactile mm -hmm. component rather than just our um, typical vocal instructions and cues. Um, if the individual is not uh, hearing that information or also doesn't have more um, um, understanding of that, uh, of that, of our abstract vocal language, then it's not accessible to them. So what is it that we can do? A response prompt might... Mm -hmm. Like physical prompts, touches on different parts of the body. Um, it could be actually um, guiding them either hand under hand, hand over hand to uh, interact with an item. Uh, it could be to draw their attention to, mm. to, to uh, specific characteristics of an item that are relevant to it. So mm. a, a cup from the perspective of somebody who is not seeing a cup right? <laughs> what is it about the cup that is, mm -hmm. what is it that is, you know, particularly yes. relevant from their perspective? What characteristics of that item are relevant from their perspective? How do they interact right. with it? Right, 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 right. Hmm. Um, you mentioned, um, um, you know, it, it, you know, some folks might not even have sort of say that you know the use of their hands or whatever because again often often these folks with sort of complex needs have a lot of you know other things going on and you know they could be you know um um you know in in, in a bed all the time or you know um often you know on, on feeding tubes and sort of different sorts of you know uh, uh, kind of um, med medical type you know equipment and whatnot um I'm curious if uh, both sort sort of for that example, maybe where they maybe can't use their hands and whatnot, or don't have as many sort of ways to kind of get that kind of uh, tactile kind of interaction. Um, but also just in general, I'm I'm curious uh, if if there's um, kind of like either like assistive technology or maybe you know or, or or things like you know like wearable devices like you know the watches and all those funky things that are out there now. Do, 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 do any of those things kind of come into play uh, with, 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 with this work? I would say that the majority of individuals with, um, have, with deafblindness have some kind of assistive technology. And of course, assistive technology is going to be across all of these, mm. could be across all of these different domains and so broad. So we think about, you know, mm. yeah, yeah, um, there's lots of different um, potential solutions. Um, but I can't say that for sure that there'd be something that is going to be, um, it's not like that's always the case, but with this group, it's so heterogeneous. Right. Um, I would say yes. that we would typically be looking for things that incorporate um, more. Uh, there's there's a lot of individuals that are a more concrete level of communication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
but not everybody. Yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> I, you know, I know I keep asking, I keep asking questions that, uh, you know, are, 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 are maybe a little overgeneralizing and, uh, and and I think we I, I keep forgetting and others will keep probably keep forgetting that there's not that many of these folks and so and like you said in the beginning there's there's so many different you know sort of um, you know ideologies and so many different sort of presentations and whatnot that you know to, to sort of say does this work you know it's probably not a, a great question to ask because it really is yeah. going to depend on that individual and sort of all those things right well that's one of the cool things is that we know everybody in the field acknowledges that there is you know that it really encompasses you know a huge range of characteristics but one of the things that that means is that you mm. know behavior analysts um can have this uh have uh um i think the um i guess a potential role in is there ability in single case research uh, because it fits this population so well, right? Mm. Just because of the fact that we're focusing on the individual mm. and we have mm. this highly heterogeneous group. Yeah. <laughs> but, mm. you know, I wanted to go this um, I feel like maybe it sure. wasn't succinct enough, you know, to actually give people like some potential tools to use. So we talked about preference assessment, but one of the things a t like an actual mm. um, tool that could be used is um a successive mm. choice stimulus preference assessment mm. and there were some general procedures that were put forth by um some authors slogan and, and gast um and that's a great resource i think uh, affected by their disability um and then as well as that i said the communication ma matrix i had noted um right. and then yes uh what it is like going back to some older research that i think is really could be really beneficial because it focuses on hmm. um, the environmental variables, which is uh, for everybody, obviously, but for this particular group, um, and looking at ecological inventories and discrepancy analyses. So really, hmm. we get so stuck on what people have to learn all the time, right? Like, and looking at this yes. natural, yes. this the skill progression that we have predetermined, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but using an ecological inventory and discrepancy analysis really allows us to, to look at the at uh, the typical routines and activities of the individual individuals interacting in those routines and then teaching the specific skills that it they, that that individual needs to participate in their everyday routines and activities zigzag is an autism therapy management platform at its core Zigzag seamlessly allows management of programs, adding, editing, changing long-term and short-term objectives on the go. Zigzag makes data collection super easy for therapists on-site and automatically calculates progress, providing you with session summaries and graphs in real time. Zigzag provides you the ability to manage all of your clients, whether they be center or home-based, and work with all the various therapists and parents seamlessly. Zigzag is based in Vancouver, British Columbia, and is fully compliant with both federal and provincial privacy requirements. Book a demo now at www.zigzagkid.com forward slash product demo and get a free 30-day trial. The third secret word is usher. Wondering just about, about uh, outcomes. Um, I, again, I'll, uh, trying to sort of not make assumptions here, but 
my brain just wants to make an assumption that this is going to be uh, going to be a lot more difficult. I mean, than maybe what some folks are used to when they're sort of working with you know kids that you know you know uh, you know are deafblind. Mm -hmm. um, what what are what are uh, trying to see what the, the right the right word is but like prognosis here like so it, I, again i know it's heterogeneous everyone's different sort of setting aside sort of all the medical things that are going on with these folks that you know might you know uh, interfere either with learning or might interfere with you know uh, living a long life um um have you seen sort of some 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 kind of really positive kind of you know long-term you know kind of Kind of kind of outcomes for these individuals. Do they do they tend to sort of, um, for the most part, remain dependent on others forever, or, or do some, you know, eventually become more independent? I'm I'm just curious. I, I obviously can't sort of speak to the whole group, but I'm just, I'm just I mean I guess you know for for folks out there that are doing this work you know they, they, obviously they got to have some soap hope that there's going to be you know some level of of success and growth and change so i'm curious to kind of what are some of sort of the 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 potential you know positive outcomes uh, to to working with deaf blind folks mm -hmm. um well i think you could take from it is that everybody everybody can learn and we're just looking at these smaller little pieces right um and i think that the most important part right education and um, more independence in their everyday activities. Um, so that's that's what I would say mm. should be the biggest focus. Um, communication, I just think, is so foundational to everybody and to all of the different exchanges and interactions that we have with developed relationships. Um, mm. And so, and to let people know what it is that you need to happen <laughs> uh, during your everyday activities. So I would say that um, communication and meaningful part and participation and increased independence in everyday activities um, are really key. Mm. And that there are, can be improved out and a nation of the skills, unique skills that the, that um, practitioners in the field of deaf blindness have and biobehavior analysts have um, mm. can help us to really meet that because it includes this more naturalistic um, focus on the individual and combines it with um, uh, a more technological um, application of instruction and um, really can make it um, individualized but also efficient and direct instruction. A couple, of, a couple more questions kind of before we wrap up. One I wanted to know was, um, so there, there's always, and, and it's important, there's always conversations in, in behavior analysis about, you know, um, competency and scope and, you know, those sorts of things. And, uh, um, and you know, really, you know, having, you know, mentorship and so on and so forth. Um, now, if, and, and you know, it, like you said, there may there may be someone else out there, but for for sake of for sake of this discussion, let's let's presume you you are you and uh, your supervisor are the only uh, behavior analysts on the planet right now that are specialized in in, in kind of this population. Um, uh, where can folks kind of go to sort of 
you know build build their competence in this area because it, it's 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 such a niche area with such a low incidence population i mean it, it you know it's 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 got to be yeah what do they do where do they go <laughs> Um, if you're talking about behavior analysts that mm. want more information on deaf blindness, um, I, there are some resources available through the National Center for Deaf Blindness. But I would also really um, go back to um, some of those uh, specific resources that I had mentioned um, and mm. ecological inventories, because that is existing literature that mm. that um, and publications right. that, um, and tools that people have that particular group but it's outside a little bit of the of the norm or what we would ha typically have in our toolboxes mm. as behavior analysts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is is so is is there any opportunity uh you know maybe in the future or or even now at no for example at, at your university for for you know you know, being that being that you're specializing in this area, are, are there courses in this area? Are, are, have you kind of developed anything? Or are you looking at kind of develop anything to kind of, you know, train you know future practitioners to kind of work more in in this area? Um, you know, as a um, if if you're looking, if you're interested just in deaf blindness, there are state um, state just to deaf blindness but as far as um tools yep. or and information for um individuals who are behavior analysts i would say that you it is mm. you know we we do try to um you know publish and also present at uh, on different topics that you know related to deaf blindness i do think that it's really important to expand behavior analysis to um, new areas, including this area, deaf blindness. Um, and so, yes. you know, I try to that there is stuff that is out there <laughs> and there is stuff that has been done in the past. You just have to look mm, a little, mm. little deeper for it to find, you know, nice. the relevant information. Um, yeah. But of course, always willing to talk to people who are interested in applying um, different um, behavior analytic uh, strategies um, and, and instructional methods to um, new populations. Absolutely. That's awesome, and 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 with that, you also mentioned that you know, there isn't a lot of research out there. You you've started to do some. I know you did a you know you did a bit of a, a review of sort of from sort of other other sort of disciplines and other publications, and then you've got your your dissertation, which um, is is that now published? Sorry, your dissertation. And I know when you sent it to me, it, it was it was a, a preprint or something. But um, um, I had sent you one piece of my dissertation yeah and so yeah. that was an that was an article that will be out in and i believe september um in education and training and autism cool some developmental disabilities of this year yeah and well that was going to be the next question is are, are you, are you what, what kind of projects yeah are, are you working on right now that, that 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 we might see down 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 the funnel as 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 time goes on <laughs> um, so a replication of that original study that has with another participant um, who is deafblind related to communication and and uh, the system of least prompts. Um, then there is, you know, you'll see, but you'll see some other other work that I have done related to um, database decision making. So those are mm. things that are in the works. <laughs>
Hmm. Right on. Really neat. Well, Siobhan, really, really cool kind of niche area that you're in. And I'm hoping, you know, folks listening will, you know, either reach out to you or, or um, you know, or at least reach out to so their, their local agencies to kind of learn more about this area. Because I know there's folks out there. I often see folks asking about what do I do? I've got someone that's deafblind. I have no idea. Uh, where to even start and I'm hoping you know uh, you know this 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 can provide a place from the start I'm just really glad that uh, you're doing this work and that you're 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 willing to, you're willing to come on the, on the podcast and and we'll, we'll be following you to see what comes next great thank you thanks so much for